This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm your host, Jonathan. Today, William enters London and takes the crown. So, the conquering is all finished now, right? Smooth sailing, straight to the Magna Carta, Shakespeare in the Park, and maybe some Byron. Well, not exactly, though that stuff is pretty awesome. While we make our way to those things, let me urge each one of you to hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're using and to share the show with others you know and on your social media. Also, great stuff's happening on Patreon as well. We have already learned about the fallout from the Battle of Clontarf in Ireland. And up next, we discover what King Malcolm Canmore has been up to in Scotland since the death of Macbeth. In this Patreon series, we'll be following the goings-on of Wales, Scotland, Ireland, and Normandy, among others, as William struggles with the fierce rebelliousness of the proud Anglo-Saxons he'd unseated in England. So if you're curious about the whole picture, you'll only find it on Patreon. All right, here we go, folks. Today's episode, episode 74, is entitled The Coronation of King William I. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Orderic Vitalis is an interesting person in history, especially when discussing the monumental Norman conquest of England. He's a name you've heard of already on this podcast, and he's a name you'll most likely hear again and again. First of all, his name, Orderic Vitalis, just sounds cool. His name was originally just Orderic when he was born and baptized in a village of Atcham, in Shropshire, England, in the year 1075, just nine years after Duke William II of Normandy became King William I, the Conqueror of England. A lot, and I mean a lot, had happened on the island in the preceding nine years, but we will get to that in due time, considering it would be Orderic's chronicles that this podcast, and the rest of history, would lean heavily upon when studying the Norman conquest of England. Now, according to sansagent.com, Orderic was the son of a Frenchman, a priest from Orléans named Odelet, who had once served as a holy confidant of Roger of Montgomery. Now, if you remember, Roger of Montgomery was one of, the Duke, was one of Duke William's most trusted and loyal friends and advisors, and he was rewarded with the brand new earldom of Shrewsbury in the near future of where we're currently at in our narrative. Odelaire became a priest of a new church there within Earl Roger's new earldom, and thus raised in esteem among his peers, though still seen as an outsider to the local English. The website continued, saying Orderic at five years of age, was sent to serve an English priest named Seward, quote-unquote, who kept a school in the Abbey of Saints Peter and Paul at Shrewsbury. Now, when he turned 11, he was sent to become a novice, which is defined by the act of entering the official ranks of the clergy without yet taking holy vows. He did this back in Normandy. He found himself at Saint Evreu en Auch a monastery which had currently been receiving lavish attention and gifts by Earl Roger. It said he knew not a single French word and felt very much, to use Heinlein's term, like a stranger in a strange land. 
and growing up in a monastery in Normandy, but being raised in an abbey in England, was where Orderic Vitalis's peculiarity began. See, Orderic was an Anglo-Saxon name, and when he arrived in Normandy, the silky slur of French was an awkward transition. But not just for Orderic. His fellow monks and the townspeople around him, I'm sure, found it quite difficult as well, as English has much harsher sounds to hit than their own language. Orderic, quite quickly, was given his first gift as a monk who would spend the rest of his life in France. The priests there gave him the Latin name of Vitalis, meaning life. Now, Vitalis, interestingly, was also the name for a member of the semi-mythical Theban legion of Christian martyrs of old, given this young foreign novice a sense of awe and gravitas. See, in 1093, he became a deacon. 14 years later, a priest. And he was given to travel on a number of occasions, including honored visits to Worcester and Cambrai in 1105, back in England. At that point, very much Anglo-Norman and another visit to the Venerable Monastery of Cluny in southern France in the year 1132, after his major work, the Historia Ecclesiastica, was finished. By the time Orderic Vitalis was in his waning years, he had, with his ecclesiastical history, built the reputation and prestige of the once downtrodden St. Evreux into something of a minor pilgrimage and retirement site in Normandy. Largely because of Orderic Vitalis's work and prestige, St. Evreux by the 1120s was entertaining guests from as far away as Scotland and Italy, and it seemed that everyone in Catholic Europe knew the name Orderic Vitalis, the English-born Norman priest with a flair for storytelling. Senseagent.com says of his writing, quote, In spite of a cumbrous and affected style, he is a vivid narrator. His character sketches are admirable as summaries of current estimates. His narrative is badly arranged and full of unexpected digressions, but he relays much invaluable information not provided by more methodical chroniclers. He throws a floodlight upon the manners and ideas of his own age and sometimes comments with surprising shrewdness upon the broader aspects and tendencies of history. His narrative breaks off in the middle of 1141, though he added some finishing touches in 1142. He reports that he was then old and infirm. Probably, he did not long survive the completion of his great work. End quote. His name itself, Orderic Vitalis, is to me the most telling thing about him, and I think talented though he was, I think that his name perfectly defines England and Normandy's relationship in the wake of Hastings. And by in the wake, I mean the many years and decades since Hastings. England underwent massive change after William stepped off his ship in Pevensey Bay, and this one priest holds all of that, all of it, in his name. Or Derek Vitalis, again, the Anglo-Saxon Norman born in England who grew up in Normandy, ultimately entertaining guests from around 12th century Europe, leaving a legacy lasting a thousand years and counting. There were several chroniclers of the Norman conquest of England, most notably William of Poitiers, William of Jumiege, the Anglo-Saxon chronicles, 
the Peterborough Chronicle, the Waltham Chronicle. I mean, the, the list goes on. But though he did pull directly and indirectly from some of these sources, Orderic Vitalis writing decades after the initial conquest is one of the most revered and most studied throughout the history uh, of this time period due to its almost even-handed and entertaining delivery. See, Orderic Vitalis wasn't afraid to reach back into his childhood and share what it must have been like for the English during this time. The English. His people. Now, he wasn't without a, without a little of that good old Norman propaganda, but he did give the English uh, more or less an even shake. So when Orderic Vitalis wrote, quote, So by the grace of God, England was subdued within the space of three months, end quote. I believe he meant it. It seemed almost like a prayer answered that thankfully the English did submit and make Duke William King, quote unquote, lest more carnage occur. But he followed it up with, quote, and all the bishops and nobles of the realm made their peace with William, begging him to accept the crown according to English custom, end quote. Begging him. Right. See, Orderic Vitalis is a mix of it all, both peoples, all perspectives on the event. He pleases the English by wishing no further harm come to them, while also appeasing the Norman sentiment that William came as a conquering hero, being begged to become the English king. I personally find Orderic Vitalis to be a most remarkable chronicler. He was truly, in almost every sense of the term, a man of his times. Again, in the early 12th century, mere decades after these events unfolded, he was born into this Norman England to a Norman father, and presumably an English mother, and then sent off to be educated in a Norman monastery, where he would rise in prestige and renown until his death approaching mid-century. But a man like Orderic Vitalis, a mixture, again, in both English and Norman in every way, would never have been had it not been for the events we're discussing right now, were it not for William of Normandy invading and ultimately subduing the English. So really, Orderic Vitalis's beginnings come with the coronation itself, which was an interesting event, you could say. When William had received what Poitiers probably thought was a subjugated, groveling mass of wretched Englishmen falling at the conquer conquering duke's feet, swearing their undying fealty and submission, William approached a pretty nervous London, in all honesty. We can't forget that this proud riverside port city was a bustling swell of over 20,000 people. But since Hastings, a couple months earlier, and William's ravaging of the lands everywhere he went, again, both out of necessity as well as a campaign of terror, London was a swollen mass of terrified, hungry, and desperate migrants looking to start a new life or, or just take refuge until their nobility solved the current crisis. I mean, that's what the nobility was there for, correct? Well, today we would do our best to provide for the suffering and to alleviate the fears of those displaced. However, as we all well know, life a thousand years ago failed to service such people. London was a powder keg, and William's approach was the spark at the end of the wick, getting closer and closer. Morris writes, quote, The survivors of Hastings and the relatives of the thousands who had fallen can hardly have looked upon the arrival of the Normans with anything other than abhorrence. End quote. 
Morris also refers to William of Jumiege's account that his advance guard, quote-unquote, found many rebels determined to offer every possible resistance. Fighting followed immediately, and thus London was plunged into mourning for the loss of her sons and citizens. Poitiers had also written about the approach of William's forces that a defensive structure be built inside the city walls, quote-unquote, as a defense against the inconsistency of the numerous and hostile inhabitants. So it was. This was the city that William was determined to stake his claim on the kingdom of the Angles and Saxons, determined to plant his own flag and assume the crown connecting England with his mainland European duchy. Which is such an odd idea that I still haven't quite wrapped my head around how, how a young King Philip I, an, an adolescent of just 14 years, wasn't the real monarch of England, King Philip I being the, the king of France, or Duke Williams, uh, the king. But I hope to solve that conundrum throughout the season. I just, I, I can't understand how you can be a duke under one king while also being a king under, but I, I'll figure it out. <laughs> Regardless, Duke William remained the Duke of Normandy and on Christmas Day of 1066 took as his own the crown of England. But that particular Christmas wasn't exactly peaceful. Morris writes, quote, Given the situation in London, there can have been little appetite for the kind of processions through the streets that we know preceded later ceremonies. We know that the ceremony took place in the confessors, that is the late King Edward's, new church at Westminster Abbey. And we also know that the audience included both English and Normans. Since there can only have been space inside for a few hundred people, the majority of London citizens must have remained at home and the bulk of the Norman army camped elsewhere, perhaps in the new castle in the city's southeastern corner. A number of armed and mounted Normans, however, were stationed outside the abbey as a precaution against ambush, end quote. So not exactly a warm welcome, but I think it's forgivable. Uh, and with such extreme tensions throughout the city, there were most likely more than a few houses and businesses filled with men plotting and planning. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the military presence throughout the city, as well as right outside of it, did nothing to calm Londoners' fears. But Londoners weren't the only fearful ones. Again, <laughs> William ordered a contingent of guards to stand outside Westminster Abbey while he received the crown. I think it's safe to say that fear existed on both sides. Now, as it was, Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury wasn't the most popular person in London at the time. Remember, from the last episode, he was the first major player in the kingdom to fall to his knees in front of William weeks earlier and swear his loyalty. Well, it seems that Archbishop Eldred of York had the honors of crowning William. So songs were sung, prayers were prayed, and the calisthenics of Catholic practice were adhered to throughout the service. Now, as for the actual oath William spoke, I couldn't find it, despite my best efforts. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but from my laptop in the American Midwest here, I was unable to locate it, unfortunately. The best I could find was an extract of a document hidden behind a paywall of the Royal Historical Society. Uh, this was published in December of 1941, the best I can tell. The extract reads the following, quote, To the early history of the coronation oath, it would be difficult to add. 
unless, which seems unlikely, some altogether fresh documents are discovered. In any case, the course of history is plain. The king bound himself by a threefold promise to preserve peace and protect the church, to maintain good laws and abolish bad, to dispense justice to all. This oath has been taken by English kings from the 10th century. It was taken by William the Conqueror and by his successors. End quote. In essence, protect the church, protect the clergy and who serves the church, govern every person within the kingdom with fairness, make good laws and abolish bad laws. That's pretty much what it is. It seems fair enough, to be honest. Uh, Morris adds something interesting, though. He writes about, quote-unquote, totally forbidding rapine and unjust judgments. Now, the very next sentence of his says it. It says, quote, The English in the audience must have been particularly keen to hear the last part in light of recent events. Now, see, Poitier basically proclaims the days and weeks leading up to the coronation were one so peaceful that the king could busy himself with you know, recreations such as hunting and falconry. Now, Morris writes, quote, The D Chronicle, by contrast, tells a different story. Having noted William's promise at Berkhamstead to be a gracious lord, it adds bitterly that, quote, Nevertheless, in the meantime, they harried everywhere they came. End quote from the D Chronicle. Now, continuing with Morris, as the English had feared, the Normans had continued to behave during these weeks as if they were still at war. Now at last, as their king swore his oath, they could hope the ravaging would cease. End quote. Now, there's a lot packed in Morris's retelling of these events. He, d- he just does a phenomenal job. I've got a ton of respect for Mark Morris. The English, if it wasn't clear already, were terrified of this man. Not Mark Morris, of William, of course. William had, to be very clear, conducted a campaign of calculated terror. Up until the nobility and clergy came to him as he swung west around London, William took up arms not against larger communities necessarily. Not entirely, anyway. To be quite honest, his forces just weren't strong enough. Remember, having suffered major losses at Hastings, then losing some at Romney, and even more, from the plague of, you know, explosive diarrhea his men, and possibly he himself, suffered from in Dover. Not to mention William leaving garrisons wherever he went. Well, William wasn't at the helm of the same force that he had disembarked with at Pevensey three months earlier. So, with his wealth of experience from a life spent in the saddle in Normandy and the other domains within France, William knew how to stretch his resources and inflict the most damage with limited forces. The guy was clever, and he earned it. If he couldn't make himself known in open battle, he would terrorize those who he could make himself known to. The peasantry. London again was swelled with fearful and anxious peasants who either lost loved ones when Normans ransacked their lands or scattered into the forests and found themselves within the city walls. Pushing forward with weakened forces, William made himself look far bigger than he really was, and it was a brilliant use of an absolutely abhorrent strategy of terror. William showed himself to be a merciless and brutal tactician leading up to his historic 
Christmas Day coronation ceremony. There, within the shuttered doors of Westminster Abbey, Archbishop Eldred of York appealed to the audience of, of the English present, asking if they would submit to William's leadership. And immediately following this, a Norman bishop from Coutances did the same to the Norman French speakers in the crowd. To the men guarding the doors outside, these two back-to-back uproars were misinterpreted as in Morris's words, quote, some sort of last-minute English treachery, end quote. So they responded in kind by sparking a fire to the wooden houses nearby. I mean, you wouldn't want to just, you know, I don't know, peek inside and see what's going on first, but according to the legend, that's what happened. Now, this is from, again, Poitiers' account, so take it with a grain of salt, but, or Derek Vitalis, who based his work on Poitiers and others, mentioned that the din of screams outside caused a panic within the abbey, and many of the English rushed outside and began putting out the fires nearby. Morris continued, quote, Meanwhile, in the abbey, only the bishops and a few monks and clergy remained to complete the coronation service. Archbishop Eldred, as was customary, anointed William with holy oil, placed the crown upon his head, and seated him on the royal throne. The churchmen were reportedly terrified, and one can well believe it. At, that, at the very moment they had called upon God to bless their new king and to grant him a peaceful rule, the scene outside was mayhem. By the end of the ceremony, we are told even the conqueror himself was trembling head to foot. It was, as Orderic observes, an inauspicious beginning. End quote. It's certainly a story that has been studied for centuries, not least of all to help explain future events, namely the proud resistance of the English and William's often horrific responses to such resistance. The coronation of King William I wasn't very regal, but it was certainly eventful, and it did absolutely nothing to help alleviate fears of both the English and the Normans. But see, this story of the coronation ceremony had some pretty bad after effects for William and his future Norman earls and nobility in the English kingdom. Or Derek Vitalis, after giving his account of the coronation debacle, says, quote, The English, after hearing of the perpetration of such misdeeds, never again trusted the Normans, who seemed to have betrayed them, but nursed their anger and bided their time to take revenge. End quote. And therein lies the origin of more organized resistance, which will unfold over the next couple decades. But there is one more very important piece to this puzzle of English resentment that I'd like to briefly outline before we end this episode. Now, with a crown on his head and an army chock full of wolves waiting in the wings for their cut of the English carcass, William was finally in a position to start paying his loyalists for their service of getting him where he was. Now, one reason for the English resentment wasn't William's doing. Do you remember the record stating the English disappointment in their nobility and clergy for submitting to William without a fight? You know, they were pretty ticked off, actually, that after so many peasants and towns and fields were murdered and ravaged and, you know, all that, not to mention their king falling at Hastings, along with his two brothers, 
and any number of bishops and priests and thanes and peasants who died nearby, the, these cowards held out just long enough, you know, for everyone else's lands to be injured or captured, but not their own. Londoners and those around the kingdom were angered that so much devastation could have been averted had this decision been made a month or two earlier, this decision of giving William their fealty after Hastings. You know, either that or just fight, but don't wait only to just give it all up after so much was lost. It was ludicrous. But, I mean, it was also kind of logical. See, as for the nobility and clergy, this was all about maintaining their own lands. And as William came closer and closer, they became more and more nervous. You know, until the Normans were simply too close for comfort, actually. But, but William saw things quite differently than the English, especially when it came to property ownership. We know some of the basic differences between England and Normandy. Mainly the, the bit about the English believing an election makes a king, while the Normans believed a coronation makes a king. You know, hence the reason why William never accepted Edgar Etheling's kingship. Because, Ed, because though Edgar was elected, he was never crowned. But another difference came in land ownership, though. On the continent, where feudalism reigned supreme at the time, William believed that the English had it all wrong. The English nobility, more or less, owned their land and governed it accordingly. They also collected their own taxes. But these rulers, from the lowest rank to the highest rank of earl, always kept the flow of income and prosperity flowing upwards toward the top. Though the king was kept in check by the Witan, the earls were still subservient to this king. However, they still maintained their own properties. The church was very much a part of this paradigm, too. They owned land and properties and towns, just as the nobility did. When William played his horrible game of terror, this loss of land and peasants and income was what prompted the English to just give up. Well, the nobility, not the peasantry. And the clergy, actually, and still not really the peasantry. When William took his oath, though, he officially brought feudalism to England, meaning that William was the real owner of these lands and his nobility and clergy merely maintained it for him, albeit being supported and in power by the king. Now, there... There was no election to speak of any longer. That's, that's nonsense. William would be judge, jury, legislator, and executive. Period. It would take a massive toll on both the income as well as the loyalty and morale of the English for years and years to come. Churches came out ahead, of course, as William was no doubt paying off his spiritual debts he'd collected over his lifetime. As violent as William's life was, we can't forget that by nearly all accounts, he was, he was quite pious. And one clue to this is how he never, to our knowledge, was unfaithful to his wife Matilda, even on very long absences from his queen while on campaign. Another clue is his attention to the church, whether in England or Normandy. He paid a lot of attention to the churches. <laughs> so large golden crosses, golden coins, and other luxuries they were sent to Norman churches to help boost their influence and prestige. These were no doubt looted from English monasteries, but that didn't matter to William. 
Pope Alexander even received a gift from William in the form of copious amounts of precious metals. But this lavishing of churches around Normandy, William was also defending himself, his soul, and the souls of his men. See, Pope Alexander realized that he had just publicly supported one Christian domain over another Christian domain. This fractured uh, that unspoken protection between Christian nations enjoyed by European Christian nobility throughout the 11th century and, you know, from time to time before it. Of course, Christian states warred with one another, but rarely had a pope chosen a side until Alexander did in 1066. And in walks Bishop Ermenfrid of Sion of the Kingdom of Burgundy to our scene. Now, Sion was a small, inconsequential monastery up, up, way up in the Alps, but it was found directly along a path through that high-altitude mountains. It was a well-worn path. Therefore, Sion was pretty plugged into the goings-on of Europe. There, a mysterious figure, eh, not really mysterious in a bad way, but just someone we don't know a lot about, a mysterious figure named Bishop Ermenfrid would make himself known by composing an ordinance and sending it to Pope Alexander to, he hoped, sign off on. This ordinance became known as the Ermenfrid Penitential, and it stated that every soldier who fought in the Battle of Hastings was to make amends for their murderous actions. It was a pretty detailed document, outlining time frames of penance for, for each man's infractions, as well as the detail that if you couldn't remember if you killed or injured anyone at Hastings, especially if you were an archer, then you are bound by God to do one day each week of penance for the rest of your life. And those were just the details of the first part of the Ermenfrid Penitential. The second part had specifics relating to the crimes committed between Hastings and King William's coronation. So that's another part with another set of pen uh, penances to serve. While the third part laid out penances for anything that happened after William's coronation. Now, as for the man in charge, William, the man who made this whole thing happen, well, of course, he got off a little lighter. As part of his own penance, he did two things of great importance, actually. First, he built an abbey supposedly on the very site of Harold Godwinson's death, which we know today as Battle Abbey near Hastings. And second, he embarked on a mission to reform the entire English church structure, bring it in line with the continental church. Yeah, William said it was all in the name of bringing this far northern island church out of the way church into the continental fold, but really it was a way to reward his own Norman bishops for their loyalty on and off the battlefield. Essentially, William would be investing these Normans with a job in his new kingdom, a practice called investiture that would erupt in continent-wide scandal within mere years of 1066. Now, this practice of investiture, this penance by William and his soldiers for their acts in England since October, see, these things would begin to define where the church really stood in terms of warfare and violence itself not to mention warfare and violence between two Christian nations, before the church did what it did, which is to say, stay as neutral as possible in most cases and await a victor. But now, 
with Pope Alexander offering a papal banner to William's forces, the Pope very much chose a side. There would be a backlash to this very soon, with the peace and truce of God being reestablished for a time, but keep this in mind as it will echo down to Pope Urban II's words in about three decades. Okay, so the other thing that William did, moving on from the church here, had to do with his outlook on feudalism. And we've touched on it already, but let's flesh it out just a bit more. See, William was at the top of his hierarchy on the continent. But now, he was in a strange land with different customs. Here in England, as I said, they saw relationship with their king quite differently. But William is the king now. And William refused to play any English games. William was king, and therefore William owned it all. The nobility simply rented it, and they in turn rented it out to lesser nobility, and so on until the lowliest peasant rented it at a suffocatingly high cost. See, the longer the length between the actual owner and actual user is what skyrockets the cost of something. For instance, from the forest where a tree is cut down to the pencil in your child's hand at school, the more people involved in that process, from tree to pencil, the more expensive the pencil becomes. The same goes for food, luxury items, clothing, property. And the same also goes for governance, which is where the brilliance of English common law and the stirrings of individual sovereignty and property rights in the Western vein of history stem from. By bringing feudalism to England, the distance between lowly peasant and his direct overlord at the top was magnified in distance to the point that simple taxation increased exponentially at every level. You know, the peasant wasn't just looking straight to the earl. You know, of course, there are Shire Reeves involved there. Uh, there are you know, local things that are involved there, but really the earl was the top dog in the earldom. Well, now it's very clear that the king is the top dog in every earldom, and the earls are directly subservient to everything the king says. Uh, whereas, again, there was a check on that balance, but let's not go too far into the weeds there. But then, as it still is today, who suffers the most from any level of taxation or distance from actual owner to actual user? Well, it's the very people at the bottom holding the whole system up. That's who suffers the most. I mean, am I the only one here who's thinking of poor Mac? You know, poor little Mac, that turtle at the very bottom of Yertle's immense throne. Is it just me? Well, in this, we begin to see more of those stirrings that would eventually develop into philosophical, economic, and political revolutions that would shape our lives today. But beyond that, William did the English dirty when he, now the sole owner of everything in England, at least in his eyes, required some begging and pleading and manipulation by the English to retain or regain their former lands, influence, and various properties. Morris writes, quote, Englishmen, in other words, were obliged to buy back their estates from the conqueror, and we can assume he charged them handsomely, end quote. But not before he positioned his own men in specific areas, which, of course, deprived so many of what was just a few months earlier, probably their ancestral lands. 
So here are a few. Odo, William's half-brother, he received Kent, which included the already fortified and established and garrisoned castle at Dover. Now, side note, it would be the same Odo who would commission the creation of the famous Bayeux Tapestry in just a few years with the wealth he earned from this position. And William's lifelong friend and advisor, William Fitzosborne, we've mentioned him on the podcast before, especially when we were talking about William's younger years. He became ruler of the Isle of Wight, as well as lands near Hampshire, which included Winchester. These were the biggest gifts immediately following his coronation, William's coronation, and there would certainly be much more. But given the lands that William owned outright to this point, that's about what he had to give. And it was at this point when his homesickness began to get the best of him. He yearned to return to Normandy and return to his wife. He had been absent across the channel for about four months as of January 1067, and he still had a duchy to run as well. And with things relatively quiet, he headed toward Pevensey, the port town again, where his journey of three months ago began. He called certain folks to his side, though, to accompany him back home. Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury, Edgar Etheling, and the two most prominent earls left in England. That's right, Earls Morcar and Edwin. Morris quotes Poitiers here, quote, Those who loyal, whose loyalty and power he particularly suspected were to join William for his homecoming, so that during his absence no revolt instigated by them might break out, and the general populace, deprived of their leaders, would be less capable of rebellion, end quote. It was a pretty smart move on William's part, but the message was clear. England's new king didn't trust his new subjects. Like, at all. And this isn't exactly the type of message you want to send when taking over any organization. But we have to consider it also from William's perspective. Was it his only move at this point? To, to stay as king of England? Personally, I think it was necessary. <laughs> it just seems to make sense. But as we'll see, it wasn't enough. In fact, the English were just revving their engines when William and his hostages, uh, excuse me, his guests made a strangely comfortable journey across a peaceful channel, just odd, where William was greeted as the thing he was back home, a conquering hero. Morris writes, quote, Everyone in Normandy behaved as if it were a time of high festival. Wherever William went, people from remotes, remote parts crowded to see him. In his principal city of Rouen, men, women, and children shouted his name. The churches in Normandy were showered with precious objects generously donated by their English counterparts. I find that line funny. The duke, now king, was reunited with his consort, now a queen, and the rest of the family and friends he'd left behind. End quote. And later, Morris adds, quote, All gazed in awe at the new king and his entourage, decked out in their clothes encrusted with gold, accompanied by their handsome, long-haired English guests. End quote. And Poitiers adds this, quote, Nothing which ought to have been done in celebration of such honor was left undone, end quote. William would spend 
1067 in Normandy. But things were hardly wrapped up in England. Some old friends were plotting, some new foes were planning, and even some of the wolves beyond the kingdom were licking their chops, circling the wounded kingdom. The Norman conquest of England was only just beginning.